0: Get tickets
1: to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio.
2: If you'd like bonus secret history of Hollywood content, including early access to these episodes and ebook versions of the shows, go to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes. Thank you.
1: Once upon a time, there lived a man who had spent his life ravaged by poverty and ill luck. He and his wife had been blessed with twelve children, whose mouths they could barely afford to feed each day. When suddenly a thirteenth child was born to the couple, the man threw up his hands and declared to his wife that there was nothing else to be done. A godfather must be found for their newest child, a guardian who could take the child away when the time was right and bring up as their own. In desperation, the man staggered out into the road, deciding to flag down the nearest passerby and bestow upon them the title of Godfather. The first passerby was God himself, who, seeing that the man was desperate, agreed immediately to take the child as his own. I am sorry for you, said God. I will hold your child at the baptism and take him into my care, for I am God and I am all benevolent. The poor man spat at the floor and withdrew his offer. My child will not go with you, he said. You give wealth to the rich who don't need it and let the poor starve. The next stranger who happened along was a finely dressed gentleman who held in his hands a violin. The poor man threw himself at the stranger's feet and implored him to be the child's godfather and to take him into his care when the time was right. Of course I shall stand as the child's godfather, grinned the stranger, and I shall make sure he has all the riches of the earth and a life filled with hedonistic joys, for I am the devil, and such pursuits began with me. The poor man again spat at the floor and took back his offer. My child shall not go along with you, he said, for you are the grand deceiver of men and have led them into sin since the first sun dawned. When evening came, a third stranger dressed in dark robes happened past the poor man, who threw himself once more at this stranger's feet and asked that he accept the role of godfather to his thirteenth child. I will stand at the baptism and assume the role of godfather to the child, said the stranger. I shall bless or curse him as equally as any other, for I am death himself, and all men will one day walk with me. You take the rich as you take away the poor, the man said. You shall be godfather to my child. When the day came, Death appeared at the church and took the sacred vows, becoming godfather to the child, a boy who grew strong and wise. When the appropriate time arrived, Death presented himself at the poor man's house and took the boy as his own into the world as guardian. passed out from the sight of men and into a dark forest where death threaded himself through the trees and the boy followed until they arrived at a small plant hidden beneath a gorse bush that carried upon its leaves a small blossom the color of buttermilk this is my own herb death said to his godson and it is a gift to you I will make you the greatest doctor the world has ever seen whenever you are called to the bed of a sick mortal simply look around and you will see me there. If I should be stood near the head of the bed, then you may tell the waiting family that all is well. Administer this herb to the sick one, and they will be healed. However, if you should see that I am stood near the foot of the bed, then the sick one belongs to me, and you must let me take them from their family's arms. Do you understand what I have said? For if you should ever disobey my rule, then a misery will befall you." The boy said that he understood death's rule and together they ventured back into the world of men. For many years the boy travelled the earth healing those who could be healed and allowing death to take those beyond help until finally he had become the most famous doctor in all the world. But one day he was presented at the bed of a great king who lay dying from a strange malaise. The doctor entered to see that death was stood at the foot of the king's bed, but such was the outpouring of grief from the nervous nation outside the king's window, who tore at their clothes and prayed hour upon hour for his recovery, that the doctor began to wonder if maybe he could cheat his godfather just once. The doctor ordered the king's valets to lift the bed and turn it round, so that death was now stood at the head of the bed. With this done, he gave the king his few herb leaves, and watched in wonder as the king sat up completely cured of his illness. Death drifted slowly towards his godson, shaking his head gravely. You have tricked me, he said. You are my godson, and I have sworn a duty to you. But if you should ever play such a trick again, a misery will befall you. The kingdom celebrated the king's recovery for three weeks, and when the music and feasting had died down, the king sent for the doctor. In gratitude, the doctor was to be given the hand of his daughter, the princess, in marriage. Before they could be married, though, the princess fell gravely ill, until her skin was ashen grey and her breath came short and faint. The doctor once again arrived at the bedchamber and found death standing at the foot of the princess's bed. For many minutes the doctor considered, a misery would surely befall him if he again tricked his godfather, but the princess was lovely and in just a short time had captured his heart. Despite the angry growls of his godfather, the doctor ordered the bed turned so that death was at the girl's head. He fed the herb to the sick princess and watched as she suddenly blossomed back to health his eyes. Furious, Death seized the arm of his godson and, shrieking, dragged him down through the floor, flying fast through the rocks of the earth, until finally they arrived in a huge cavern lit by thousands upon thousands of candles, some tall, some medium-sized, and some short as pennies. See these candles. Every soul on earth has a candle burning down here. The tall ones belong to children, as they have many years left to burn. The medium-sized candles belong to the young and in love who have half a life left to live. The short candles belong to the old who are about to die out. Which is mine? the doctor asked. Death drew out a skeletal finger and pointed to a sputtering candle as flat as a shirt button. But you must forgive me, pleaded the doctor. I fell in love and couldn't help it. You are my godfather who swore to watch over me throughout my life. Surely you could light for me another candle. The doctor fell to his knees and grabbed at the robes of death. I implore you, he wept, do not let this misery befall me. Death regarded his godson and then with his fingertips plucked the last remaining fragments of the doctor's candle and held it mere inches from the new one yes you are my godson said death and i swore to watch over you but the oath i have taken as death runs far deeper with that death tipped the small winking flame from the last of the doctor's candle onto the floor and as the hot wax touched the ground so too did the doctor fall down dead at death's feet for in the end, be they son in law, friend or foe, all are equal in the eyes of death.
2: Back in the Selznick days, Varluton's greatest rival for Selznick's affections was Kay Brown. While Luton had busied himself from day to day by rewriting and improving the many Selznick scripts and offering perceptive advice about the minutiae of a film's production into Selznick's ear, Kay Brown, Selznick's East Coast representative, was busy securing the movie rights to Gone with the Wind, was negotiating the finer points of Ingrid Bergman's move from Stockholm to Selznick's Hollywood studio, and had signed Alfred Hitchcock to his now legendary seven-year contract. Each time Luton scored an ace, acting as second-unit producer or coming up with the now-timeless Atlanta crane shot in Gone with the Wind, Kay Brown would fire back from New York by winning the rights to Daphne du Maurier's novel Rebecca or signing Laurence Olivier to a Hollywood movie contract. On the East Coast, Kay Brown would grumble about Luton, sarcastically referring to him as Selznick's overweight golden boy. While on the opposite coast, Luton would remark to anyone who listened that Selznick would do well to rid himself of the Harpy from the East. It was therefore something of a surprise to fellow Selznick producer William Wright, when he saw that not only had Luton met a visiting Kay Brown at the train station in Hollywood, but had presented her with a bunch of gardenias, which carried a small card upon which was printed in neat block capitals, Welcome to Hollywood. Puzzled, Wright accompanied Luton and Brown as she toured the studio, noting that Luton remained relatively silent throughout the day and wore upon his face a mysterious half-smile. When the day was over and Brown had left them both for a dinner date, Wright took Luton to one side and asked the question that had been bothering him all day. Changed your mind, I see, about Brown. What are you talking about? said Luton. "'The flowers, the card, I see you've changed your mind about our visitor.' Luton chuckled. <laughs> "'Gardenias,' he said, looking at Wright expectantly. "'Huh?' Wright frowned and shook his head. "'Gardenias,' Luton said again. "'You read the card too, right?' "'Yeah,' said Wright uncertainly. "'I don't understand.' "'Gardenias!' Luton repeated. The most banal flower you can give to a person, plus the inscription, Welcome to Hollywood, I mean, come on! It's the most vapid thing you can say to a visitor. It's the line that chauffeurs write on cardboard signs when they're waiting at airports. If Brown has an ounce of intelligence, she'll know the whole thing was a giant screw you. Wright squinted. As far as revenge plots go, it's not exactly the Count of Monte Val. Luton held up a finger and slipped open his jacket. Beneath the lapels, laying in crisp contrast against his blindingly white shirt, was a mauve paisley tie that shone a savage pink in the California heat. It was, beyond doubt, the most hideous tie that had ever assaulted Wright's eyes. I call it the dog-puke tie, Luton grinned. "'It looks like a spaniel vomited down my chest. "'I wear it only upon those occasions "'when I wish to silently insult someone I don't like. "'Anybody who looks at this tie "'and doesn't realise that I'm insulting him is a fool.' "'Why don't you just insult them verbally?' said Wright. "'It's classier this way,' Luton said. "'Now let's get to my office. "'I need to take this thing off "'in case I meet someone I like.'" For the next several weeks, William Wright held on to the story of the dog puke tie for fear of ruining Luton's reputation at Selznick's studio. From time to time, he would see Luton wearing the ties he showed around a particularly arrogant investor or held contract talks with a troublesome director. Always, Luton would see Wright looking and wink at him. Finally, Wright could hold on to the story no longer and over a few drinks, told Daniel O'Shea, Selznick's lawyer, all about the dog puke tie. O'Shea burst into laughter. Good God, that man is a genius, he roared. Why in the hell didn't I ever think of doing that? I meet several dozen sons of bitches every day of my life, and I'd love nothing more than to shove up my middle finger without them seeing it. The next day, O'Shea set a meeting with Luton, intending to ask him where he could procure for himself such a tie and arrived to be greeted by a smiling Luton, who wore proudly against his shirt, the famous dog-puke tie. Since arriving at RKO, Luton had only dusted off the dog-puke tie for his scheduled meetings with Lou Ostro, a man who made no such subtle attempts to disguise his middle fingers at Luton. Despite the rampant success of Cat People, and of the orders from Charles Kerner, who'd commanded that Luton be given carte blanche from now on, Ostro feared the experimental indulgences of the artistically inclined, especially where RKO's money was concerned. Shortly after Luton had been given the title for his next movie, I Walked with the Zombie, Ostro crashed into Luton's office holding out a newspaper, his eyes lit by a fever. Tell me you've read this, Ostro spluttered. What is it? Saturday Evening Post, a piece by Richard Hubler. Lou, I'm busy. Could we do this later? No, we could not do this later. Have you read it? No. Then allow me to enlighten you, Ostro announced and shook open the paper. The article, entitled Scare Em To Death and Cash In, had appeared on May 23rd and had contained Hubler's groveling appraisal of the continued success of Universal Studios in the horror genre. Spurred on by the recent and explosive sensation caused by Universal's The Wolfman It cracked an all-time record at Bridgeport and The Ghost of Frankenstein In Cincinnati, it outgrossed Dumbo Hubler had dedicated six pages to the Universal success formula, paying particular attention to the talents of Universal horror writer Kurt Ziodmak, director George Wagner, and their newest star Lon Chaney Jr., The centerpiece of Hubler's eulogy was a list, related to him by George Wagner, of the seven key ingredients to the Universal Horror recipe. Number one, they have to be once upon a time tales, Wagner had said. Number two, they must be believable in characterization. At the reading of this line, Luton raised an eyebrow. I don't know any believable characters who would tie up a suspected werewolf on the night of a full moon and then go for a walk in the forest. Ostro glared at him and then cleared his throat. throat) Number three, they must have unusual technical effects. Number four, besides the main monster, there must be a secondary character of weird appearance, such as Igor. Why? said Luton. Number five, they must confess right off that the show is a horror film. Number six, they must include a pish-tush character to express the normal skepticism of the audience. Pish-tush? Luton frowned. Uh. I always wondered what the official name for those guys was, thank you. And number seven, Ostro said. They must be based on some pseudo-scientific premise. As far as I can see, you are barely using one of these ingredients. Well, give me some more money and I'll be happy to use some unusual technical effects, said Luton. Lou, we're not universal. Their formula is tired. It's sensational from time to time and people run along to see what all the fuss is about, but it has no legs. People will bore of it. I know you want me to do the usual chiller stuff, which will make you a quick profit, be laughed at, and then be forgotten, but I'm going to make the kind of suspense movie I like. And what are your plans so far for I Walked with the Zombie? said Ostra. The sound of the title being spoken aloud caused Luton to shrivel. It would kill fully half of the public's interest in the film before a single seat had been sold, but Luton was tired of saying it out loud. Instead, he settled for, as soon as I get a writer, I'll start to work things out. You have a writer, Ostro smiled. I hired him today. Luton frowned and then felt his heart sink with a clank. Anyone I know? Ostro placed the newspaper down in front of Luton and stabbed a finger at one of the pictures. The image was that of a balding man wearing glasses. His smile was crooked, and from its corner hung a long pipe. The caption beneath read, Universal's Horror Scribe Sensation, Kurt Sjordmak. You have to be kidding me, Luton murmured. With Luton now in complete control of his movies, thanks to Charles Kerner, the RKO front office had few tools with which to influence his films. The hokier the title, the pulpier the movie, or so they reasoned. I Walked With a Zombie was perfect. The movie would have to feature at least one zombie and presumably some walking. It had to be classified as a horror movie, but Lou Ostro and various others wanted a few more guarantees than that. They'd seen how Luton and his team had managed to twist a title like Cat People, which surely should have been a werewolf thriller but with, you know, cats, into a shadowy Freudian fairy tale about sexual repression and allurophobia. Saddled with a title like I Walked with a Zombie, Luton's options were limited, yet there was an opportunity to back him further into a creative corner by assigning to him a writer who'd toe their line. With a gallery of past writing credits including Man Made Monster, The Invisible Woman, The Invisible Man Returns, The Ghost of Frankenstein, and of course The Wolfman to his name, Kurt Siodmak seemed to be the perfect choice. Siodmak had fled the burgeoning anger of the Nazis in the mid-30s, From time to time, this smoldering prejudice had burst into furious flames on the streets of Dresden, Sjodmak's home, and slowly, he'd watched his close-knit Jewish community crumble and dissolve away in search of safety. He and his brother, the director Robert Sjodmak, had spent their 20s in the company of creative friends, among them Billy Wilder. Edgar Ulmer, and Fred Zinnemann. In 1935, older brother Robert's film The Burning Secret was openly attacked in the press by Hitler's Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, who objected to its subversive themes of adultery. Consequently, Robert was forced to flee the country and made a name for himself as a director of some note in France. Kurt himself wasn't far behind. After witnessing a public address by Goebbels which called for blatant persecution of Germany's Jews, Kurt himself fled for England where his talents as a screenwriter began to flourish. By the time war broke out, the Sjordmach brothers were again chased from their homes by Hitler. Robert, whose name was still on the blacklist for his films surrounding Forbidden Themes, saw the oncoming Nazi forces as they entered France and fled for Hollywood. Kurt had been there since 1937 and had, in his own words, settled instantly into a sci-fi and horror groove. By the time Lou Ostro had hired him away from Universal in 1942, Kurt Sjodmak's name had become one of the more familiar among the Universal horror credits, alongside that of Jack Pierce, John P. Fulton, Milton Krasner, and George Wagner, names that seemed permanently imprinted on the front set of Universal's titles, even if the public at large weren't exactly sure why they were there. Saddling Val Luton with a pulp title, and giving him a story by the pulpiest horror screenwriter around, would guarantee, Lou Ostro hoped, a pulpy horror hit for RKO. The initial meeting between Siodmak and Luton was polite but somewhat frosty. To a friend later that evening, Siodmak remarked that while he'd found Luton to be genial enough, he just couldn't seem to get over how bad his taste in ties was. "'I only hope he doesn't wear that mauve concoction at every meeting with me,' Siodmak remarked. Over the course of a week... Sjodmak would arrive daily with story outlines and suggestions, laying them carefully out in front of Luton, who hummed and hawed his way across them, before summarily rejecting almost all of them. His work extinguished, Siodmak would shrug his shoulders and happily go back to the drawing board overnight, returning the following day to show Luton his amendments, only to have them thrown out again. There was this odd friction between us, Sjodmak said later, because he liked people he could dominate. He couldn't do that to me because I was an independent. By the end of the week, Luton had grumpily agreed to a bare story outline created by Sjodmak. I started with a beautiful woman married to a plantation owner who every year went to Paris, said Sjodmak. He wants to keep her forever, so when he finds out that she wants to run away... He will not let her go, so he makes her into a zombie. Then he can keep her, he can have her whenever he wants, but she has no reactions to him. That's why she walks around. She was in a living death. Luton read the completed outline, rolled his eyes, and wired Siodmak to tell him to go ahead and turn in a full script. For Siodmak's part, his brief spell under Val Luton was always remembered fondly. He was a brilliant man. Constructive and intelligent, Siodmak said forever afterwards. He was much more interesting than any of those Universal guys. Siodmak was often asked if there had been any tensions between Luton and himself due to the fact that he was a Universal horror writer and Luton's work was so starkly different. No, Siodmak answered. Why would he have engaged me if he'd had so little respect for my work? It was unfortunate, though, Siodmak would often remark that Luton had never seemed to lose that awful tie at their meetings. Luton's working unit on I Walked with a Zombie was to consist of Jacques Tourneur, again chosen to direct the film, cinematographer J. Roy Hunt, who was replacing a temporarily unavailable Nicholas Musaraka, and editor Mark Robson, who along with Tourneur had worked with Luton on Cat People. The situation is this, Luton told them, Ostro has hired Kurt Siodmak to write us a universal horror movie. If I say no, then Ostro will pester us throughout shooting with other ways to alter what we're doing, so we're playing along. Sjodmak's not a bad guy. In fact, he's come up with a few interesting ideas, which I'm sure we can use somewhere. What I need is another writer to help me write a new screenplay. I need someone who can write fast and who can write well. Ray, said Mark Robson. There's a girl in the Young Writer's Project called Ardell Ray, Virginia Brissack's kid. They loved to write her off when she started last year, but she writes the best scripts in the whole project and she turns them out almost overnight. Do you know her well? Luton asked. Robson smiled to himself. Between 1933 and 1936, Robeson, a hungry-looking puppy of a kid who hardly slept, would spend his days divided between college classes, working in the props department at Fox, and working the night shift at a bakery, all while trying to break into the movie somehow. His co-worker at said bakery was another Hollywood dreamer by the name of Dalton Trumbo, a 28-year-old writer who was having trouble making it pay the bills full-time. Also working the bakery's night shift with the two boys was Ardell Ray, a former model rattling around Hollywood in search of her own dream, and a girl with a thing for wordsmiths. The boys, both hopelessly in love with her, would nightly present Ray with their day's achievements in dream chasing. Robeson would show her the endless stream of rejection letters he was receiving from Hollywood's technical departments, while Trumbo would showcase his writing work for her. Of the two, her heart seemed to flutter faster in the presence of Trumbo, and between shifts, a nervously awkward romance bloomed briefly between these two good comrades. It was a romance that was never destined to endure. Both Trumbo and Ray would touch hearts with more suitable partners before long, but it was a time they both always reflected upon with fond silence for the rest of their lives. It was during this golden period that Trumbo presented to Ray his latest work, a novel he'd poured his heart into entitled Johnny Got His Gun. When her estate was settled and sorted, sometime after her death in 1983, an undated draft of Trumbo's novel, which would go on to win one of the first National Book Award prizes and establish Trumbo as one of America's leading writers, was found among her most private papers bearing her notes and recommendations in the margins. Robeson had always remembered the bakery shifts that stretched till dawn and the three dreamers that packed bread there as the most enchanted nights of his life. I know Ardil Ray well, he told Luton. She's one in a million, trust me. Over the past few months, Mark Robeson had almost become Luton's shadow. He was a permanent fixture at not just staff meetings, but at the Luton home. So accustomed were Luton's family to the presence of Robeson in the evenings that an extra place at the dinner table was set each night without asking. Robeson had even taken to reading Nina her bedtime stories while Val and Ruth washed the dishes. My father loved him like a son, Nina remembered years later. And Mark idolized my father. Indeed, Nina could even recall times when Robeson, so enchanted by Luton's character, would assume some of her father's mannerisms and speech patterns, a habit that Ruth and Nina found secretly hilarious. As time had passed, Luton's feelings towards his new protege had become nurturing. He longed for this kid to succeed, and to hopefully see his dreams of becoming a film director realized. You know, if it's ever in my power, he told Robeson one evening after dinner, I'll get you a director's chair. That would be a dream come true, Robeson replied. Thank you. Don't thank me just yet, Luton smiled. You've seen the kind of films I get given. If Mark Robson said that Ardell Ray was one in a million, then Luton knew that his word could be trusted. Okay, she's hired, said Luton. But we must start shooting something soon, said Tourneur. What will the story be? There's an old tale I remember called Godfather Death, said Luton. There's a young man who has the grim reaper for his godfather and spends his life being a great doctor, able to restore life back to those on the verge of death by use of a little magic potion given to him by his godfather. But he goes against an agreement and pays the price with his own life the central conceit of Godfather Death had always appealed to Luton, that of a healer who upon first appearance seems to be a man of science but whose gifts are actually reliant on the spirit world. Luton's idea was to subvert this proposition. The healer in this case would wear the outward appearance of the supernatural but would in fact cure her patients using scientific means. But this sheep in wolf's clothing would ultimately pay a terrible price. So the story will be of a magic healer who heals using science and not magic, Tourneur asked. That's the idea, said Luton, and to that idea we add zombies, voodoo, infidelity and the Caribbean. Tourneur frowned. Oh, and also, Luton said, I want to base the whole thing on Jane Eyre. Ardell Ray was used to the artistic type. Her mother, Virginia Brissack, had begun a career on the stage just four years before Ardell's birth in 1907, and had paused only to see that Ardell was fit and healthy before leaping into her next dramatic role. The show, as they say, must go on. Ardell's was a ramshackle childhood in which she was passed from grandparent to grandparent so that her mother's stage career would be allowed to blossom. But during those brief visits from Madame Brissac, they would steal away to some private area of a garden so that her mother could tell her one more story about her fabulous life so far. When I was a girl your age, her mother told her once, I used to collect autographs. I had everyone's from Sarah Bernhardt to Henry Irving. The one i always wanted though was rudyard kipling so one day i wrote him a letter asking him for his autograph one week later i received a letter from his secretary which read mr kipling would be pleased to send along an autograph in exchange for a small donation of two dollars and fifty cents to his favored london charity about two months later his office received my letter which said dear mr kipling Enclosed is the $2.50 for your fresh air fund. I suppose you thought that when I saw $2.50, I'd give up the idea of your autograph, but I didn't. You see, I've had to save for soldiers here, for we have wars of our own once in a while. And as I'm only a little schoolgirl with an income of 50 cents a week, you can see it's taken me some time to get the $2.50 together. But here it is, and I'm waiting for your autograph. He was in India at the time, but his secretary sent along my letter, and he was so amused by it that a few weeks later I received a letter from him containing not just his autograph, but one of his poems. But my totem saw the shame from his ridgepole shrine he came, and he told me in a vision of the night. There are nine and sixty ways of constructing tribal lays, and every single one of them is right. My lesson to you is this, Adil. Virginia Brissac told her daughter. Words can move the spirit, even all the way from India. Never forget that. Within five minutes of meeting Ardell Ray, Val Luton knew he'd found someone special. Firstly, she did not smirk or frown at the title, despite Luton's own embarrassment at saying it out loud. When he handed her the draft screenplay bearing the name of Kurt Siodmak, one of the most talked about screenwriters in Hollywood at the time, and then told her to improve it, she did not crumple with fear. When he then told her that she was to base the rewrite on Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre and a little-known folk story called Godfather Death, set it in the Caribbean and throw in at least one zombie, she simply jotted down the requests in a neat list and said, will do. But the crowning moment in this interview slash audition was when luton asked her to have a finished draft on his desk within a week to this request she finally frowned and replied don't you want it sooner luton laughed (laughs) knock yourself out ray's cheeks blushed and she rose to leave miss ray he said may i just congratulate you on what he smiled you are about to write a story entitled, I Walked With a Zombie. Thank you for not finding that concept too ridiculous. My original surname is Mockbee, she replied. I'm okay with weird names. Within three days, the new script by Ardell Ray was sitting on Luton's desk. It took him just two more days to rewrite it for a third time, and finally, satisfied with the story, Luton's unit had their script. Luton would originate the ideas for our films, Turner said later, and then call in the writers, myself and the editor Mark Robson, and we were encouraged, over cups of tea, to say anything wild. Val was so conscientious. I'd go to a film or a theatre downtown and my wife and I would be driving back at half-past one or two in the morning and always, as we passed the studio, we'd see a light in that corner office of his. And he'd be alone, dreaming, working, correcting what the writer had written. He could only work at that time of night. Next day, he'd hand the work to us. Where
0: were you trained? Memorial Hospital here in
3: Ottawa. Now, this last
0: question's a little irregular, Miss Cardinal. I really don't know quite how to begin. Do you believe in witchcraft?
2: I Walked With a Zombie tells the story of the idealistic Betsy Connell, a young nurse from Canada who's employed by a legal firm to care for Jessica, the sick wife of a plantation owner, Paul Holland, on the Caribbean island of San Sebastian.
3: Why was the maid crying? I'm not sure I can make you understand.
1: Do you know what this is?
3: figure of St. Sebastian?
1: Yes. But it was once the figurehead of a slave ship. That's where our people came from, from the misery and pain of slavery. The generations they found life a burden. That's why they still weep when a child is born and make merry at a burial. I've told you, Miss Connell, this is a sad place.
2: Jessica's illness is a mystery to Betsy and to the island's medical men, who all regard her as some kind of medical contradiction. As far as they can ascertain, Jessica has been struck down by some rare disease, which has attacked her spinal cord so as to render her completely mute and docile. In her current state, Jessica wanders the plantation unable to communicate and seemingly with no will of her own.
0: She makes a beautiful zombie, doesn't she? It's pitiful. I knew Jessica, we were friends. Sometimes it's better for a doctor to laugh than pull a long face when things are hopeless.
3: Yes, I know. But I don't know about zombies,
0: Doctor. Just what is a zombie? A ghost, a living dead. You want to know about your patient, don't you?
3: Please.
0: I'll try to put it simply. Mrs. Holland had a tropical fever, very severe. We might say that portions of the spinal cord were burned out by this fever. The result is what you see, a woman without any willpower, unable to speak or even act by herself though she will obey simple commands.
3: Does she suffer?
0: I don't know. I'd rather think of her as a sleepwalker who can never be awakened. There's very little we can do except keep her physically comfortable, light diet, some exercise.
3: She can never be cured?
0: I've never heard of a cure.
2: Paul Holland himself seems to feel some responsibility for his wife's state, and as the cracks in his detached veneer begin to show, Betsy finds herself falling in love with him, while simultaneously suspecting him of an abusive side. To complicate matters, Paul's half-brother, Wesley, seems intent on drinking himself to death, dropping hints between drinks that he is also in some way responsible for Jessica's state. Shocked?
3: I just wish I hadn't heard.
1: Why? Everybody else knows it. Paul sort of that. He's playing the noble husband for you, isn't he? Well, that won't last long.
3: I think we'd better go now. Will you take me
1: home? One of these days, he'll start on you, just like he did on her. You think life's beautiful, don't you, Jessica? You think you're beautiful, don't you, Jessica? What he could do to that word beautiful, that's Paul's great weapon, words. He uses them like other men use their fists.
2: The calming factor between these two polar opposites is the benevolent Mrs. Rand, Wesley's mother and Paul's stepmother, herself an island doctor who, behind the welcoming smiles, also seems to be hiding some secret regarding Jessica's illness. Add to this intriguing mix the sound of voodoo drums beyond the cornfields that surround the plantation. They lead to the home fort, a place where the island's voodoo worshippers gather and which is guarded by the sinister zombie Car Four who waits alone in the shadows between the corn. Desperate to save Jessica and thereby free Paul from his self-imposed curse, Betsy takes her through the corn to the home fort to see if the voodoo spirits can heal the mute Jessica. But upon arriving, discovers a secret that will twist the story in upon itself. It's now up to Betsy to solve the riddle of Jessica's mysterious affliction before the voodoo drums can call her away for good. Luton and Ray's script, built upon the bones of Kurt Sjordmak's initial outline, is a tale far more enigmatic than its title would suggest.
3: I walked with a zombie. (laughs) Does seem an odd thing to say. Had anyone said that to me a year ago, I'm not at all sure I would have known what a zombie was. I might have had some notion that they were strange and frightening, even a little
2: funny. It begins almost lightheartedly, with Betsy's voiceover almost laughing at the fact that once she walked with a zombie, while showing two characters walking playfully along a stretch of beach. For the briefest of moments, the viewer could be forgiven for believing that the film was a romance. But as the initial scenes begin to play out, So too do the shadows begin to drift in. Betsy's first meeting with Paul Holland takes place on the boat that will take her to the plantation. Betsy looks lovingly at the waters around them, remarking on their beauty, only for Holland to crush these fancies by explaining away their beauty as something
0: hateful.
1: Everything seems beautiful because you don't understand. Those flying fish, they're not leaping for joy. They're jumping in terror. Bigger fish want to eat them. luminous water it takes its gleam from millions of tiny dead bodies the glitter of putrescence there's no beauty here only death and decay
2: in the middle of the plantation courtyard built into the fountain is the figurehead from a boat an effigy of saint sebastian himself referred to by the islanders as Thai misery who watches the passers by with emotionless eyes from behind the waters of the fountain several arrows piercing his body as night falls, we catch our first glimpse of Jessica, a figure in white, a ghost ripped straight from Victorian literature, who drifts silently throughout the shadows, terrifying the newly arrived Betsy. The film's centerpiece arrives at around the halfway mark when Betsy leads the mute Jessica into the cornfields, following the pervasive beating of the drums through the darkness, thereby providing the walk of the film's title.
3: You go right from the an obey a sign in the cane. Here, you turn and face a banyan tree on the hill. Walk toward it and keep walking. Keep walking, Miss Betsy, and you'll come to the crossroads. There's a guard there, count four. He keeps the crossroads, but he won't do you no harm when he sees the voodoo patches. He'll let you pass.
2: It is here that we are introduced to the guardian of the fields, Car Four a truly terrifying presence who waits the worn off curious strangers with his unblinking engorged eyes it is car four aside from the nagging sense of dread throughout the movie that provides perhaps the only overtly horrifying element in the film the rest of the chills come in whispers from the unsettling dance of the sabreur, the voodoo ritual practitioner who sways and stares like a hypnotized snake To the shadow of Car 4 on the walls of the plantation as he comes to do the home fort's bidding. Even the song of a street musician is rendered terrifying by Tourneur's incredible direction. In one of the most disquieting scenes in the film, Betsy is at a street cafe with Wesley, who's becoming progressively more drunk as the afternoon wears on. In the background, we hear the song of a Calypso musician, which seems to be growing nearer.
0: West, it's time we started home the wife and the brother they want to go but the holland man he tell them no the betsy
2: suddenly holland realizes that the street around her is deserted wesley has fallen asleep on the table behind her and as she looks around she sees the source of the song an unnamed singer who's walking slowly towards her from between the trees Singing a song that seems to be hinting at the answer to the riddle of Jessica's illness. The, the actions of this strange singer, however, are abnormal. His eyes never leave her. The song seems to be growing in intensity, and on he walks nearer
1: and nearer.
0: Family, a woe, a me, shame and sorrow for the family.
2: The singer was played by a man named Pignard, and the song he sings in this particular scene had a far more painful history behind it than anyone could have guessed. He was born Lancelot Victor Edward Pignard in the town of Camuto in Trinidad, to a government official father who wanted nothing more than to be respected and admired. Life was spent being taught that order and etiquette were the most important things in life, and that a man may flirt with pursuits designed to heat the soul from time to time, but that the important things in life were a career, and to have the unflinching respect of one's contemporaries. The problem was that Lancelot was bewitched by music, and floating in on the thick air of commuters' evenings came the echoed sounds of Al Jolson and Irving Berlin and Spencer Williams. Rising from the windows of jazz clubs and attics and bedrooms, life in music was out, though. Before Lancelot could scrape together enough bravery to talk to his father about futures, he was packed off to the West Indies to train as a doctor. Several years later, the medical career of Lancelot Pignard began in earnest as his proud family watched him sail to America, certain that the family name was in good hands. For a little while, he behaved himself. But Mr. Pinard the Elder had made a grave mistake in insisting that his son begin his career in New York, which during the free-spirited madness of the 1930s was second only to New Orleans as the wildest jazz spot in the West.
0: Swing bands playing, bimbo swaying at the Harlem Chamboree.
2: It was a decade of swing jazz where Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong and Fletcher Henderson were inventing new styles and forms live on stage each evening.
0: In 1937,
2: Benny Goodman walked onto the stage at Carnegie Hall and gave the gift of jazz to the wider world who'd been content to ignore the magic happening in basement clubs and backroom parties. And watching from the front of the stage, from the shadows of a doorway, from his space at the bar, mouth open in awe and helpless to stop his foot from tapping, Lancelot Victor Edward Pignard a man who once upon a time had made a promise to become a doctor, but whose heart just wouldn't stop singing. The music scene of New York was a fruit tree that kept on giving. Lancelot would study during the day, following around wiser medical heads as an intern, and try his best to remain interested in their teachings. But when night fell, he would escape into the city and drink in any live musical performance he could find. It was at a concert by Roland Hayes, one of the first world-renowned African-American classical concert artists, that Lancelot was struck by an epiphany and decided to follow his heart into a career in music. Within a week, he'd given notice at the hospital and had begun a musical education at a nearby conservatory where he focused his efforts on classical music. But even here, Lancelot's imagination wouldn't sit still. There was nothing more intoxicating than the sound of a great concerto or the swells and dives of a dizzying symphony. But what if to their blend he could add an influence? A background melody of something new, but something time-honored. Something that could integrate with classical music, something from his upbringing. Something like calypso music? Incredibly, Pignard began to marry the techniques and patterns of classical music with the calypso songs of his childhood. Music that had begun in the streets and clubs of Trinidad, and which was slowly beginning to filter out to the world at large.
0: Work all night and drink a rum.
2: Unfortunately for the world, Lancelot's experiment with musical fusion, calypso versus classical, have now been lost to time. Before long, though, the calypso had begun to swallow the classical, and Lancelot was in demand throughout New York as a calypso entertainer.
1: Six foot, seven foot, eight foot, bunch.
2: Nightclubs, he would hold the audience enraptured with his buoyant tales of dishonourable men and seductive women, laced with Calypso's abundant double entendres. Music that sprang throughout the room, music that made you dance or made you laugh, but mostly both.
1: Daylight, Daylight, Daylight. 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 Daylight.
2: The emerging Calypso stars of the 1930s all had grand names influenced by the huge number of Anglophiles back home in Trinidad, from Roaring Lion and Lord Invader to Lord Kitchener. It was perhaps inevitable then that Lancelot Victor Edward Piñar would take the stage name Sir Lancelot.
0: Matilda, 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 she takes me money and runs Venezuela. Everybody, Matilda, 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 she takes me money and runs. 1 thousand dollars friends are lost. The woman even keep
2: me cat It was the band leader Gerald Clark, himself a Trinidad export, who persuaded Sir Lancelot to make calypso recordings. So successful were these records that Sir Lancelot was offered a regular spot at New York City's hottest nightclub, the Village Vanguard, which to this very day still hosts the finest jazz has to offer from behind its doors on 7th Avenue. By the early 1940s, American calypso music belonged to Sir
0: Lancelot.
2: Pressings of his records were selling out in stores nationwide, and his tongue-in-cheek lyrics and musical fables have become touchstones in American culture. Requests for live appearances began to flood in, and Sir Lancelot was soon touring the West Coast, playing to packed houses throughout Southern California, most notably at the legendary Wilshire Ebel Theater in Los Angeles, the place where Judy Garland had been discovered, and where in 1937, Amelia Earhart had made her final public appearance before embarking on her doomed flight around the world. As was the case with so many popular entertainers passing through California, Sir Lancelot was offered a role in a movie, 1941's Two Yanks in Trinidad, although his appearance in the film was uncredited. With this success beneath his belt, Lancelot traveled proudly home to hold up his achievements as an offering to the family he'd left in Trinidad over a decade earlier. He left the brash lights and roared goodbyes of America and touched down on Trinidad's soil, hopeful of a hero's welcome, but found instead backs turned and the chill of ignorance. The problem was, Lancelot explained much later, that they have a whole British style down there, and figured that calypso was the music of the lower classes. Gentlemen didn't sing calypsos at that time. I was the first, and when I went back, my friends did not receive me. But it was the reception he received from his family that truly broke the heart of Sir Lancelot. Devastated by their son's path in life, his father, who'd hoped his son would do their name honor by returning as a doctor, told Lancelot plainly that he was ashamed of his very existence, and that if he had known that his son would end up as a calypso singer, he would never have considered bringing him into the world. Lancelot's family, who'd gathered at the family home in grave silence, Each fully endorsed the view of Mr. Pignard, and as Lancelot watched, struggling to contain his grief, they each stood and turned their backs on him one by one. Broken and humiliated by his family's rejection, Lancelot boarded the boat back to America. It was on this voyage, between the two halves of his life so far, that he picked up his guitar and consumed by pain at his father's words, began to sing his miseries aloud, beginning with the line: ah woe am me Shame and sorrow for the family." Woe,
1: am me Shame and sorrow for. The-
0: There was a family that lived on the Isle of San Sebastian a long, long while. The head of the family was a Holland man, and the younger brother, his name was Rand. Aho, Shame and sorrow for the
2: family! Aho, Amin! Shame and sorrow for the family! By the time Sir Lancelot arrived back in the fair and warm arms of America he had composed the song Shame and Scandal in the Family, the song for which he would become best
0: remembered.
2: But although audiences delighted in the witty wordplay and infectious melody, each performance stung at the heart of Sir Lancelot as a reminder of the disappointment he'd been to the family he loved. It was around this time that he received a visit from a man named Val Luton, who had a crazy idea about a movie he was making. Luton, who was already a huge fan of Sir Lancelot's ability to weave an amusing three-minute story set to music, asked the Calypso singer if he would appear as the Greek chorus in I Walked With a Zombie. At the film's halfway point, Betsy and Wesley visit a street cafe and chat cordially as Sir Lancelot's street performer sings the classic tune British Grenadiers just out of shot. Suddenly, the song becomes a new melody, a folk tale set to music, describing the woeful history of the Holland family's misfortune, a song locally known as Fort Holland. The head of the family was a
0: Holland man, and the younger brother, his name was Rand.
1: Listen, did I ever tell you the story about the little mule on the plantation? The little mule and
0: Clement.
2: Wesley, who's horrified to hear his family's scandals being sung in public, asks the street performer to stop. Sir Lancelot approaches the table and apologizes profusely for causing offense, and then disappears.
0: Mr. Rand? I've come to apologise. All right. Just an old song I picked up somewhere. Don't know who did make it up. All right, all right. Some of these singers on this island, they'd tattletale on anybody. Believe me, Mr Rand, I never would sing that song if I'd known you were with the lady. Get out of here.
2: The scene then cuts to some time later. The street surrounding Betsy's table is deserted. Night has fallen, and Wesley, who has presumably been drinking all day has fallen into a numb stupor on the table. The wife and the brother, they want to go, but the Holland man, he tell them no. From somewhere in the darkness, Betty hears the Fort Holland song being sung again, and looking round, is horrified to see Sir Lancelot walking slowly from between the trees in the distance, his eyes fixed eerily upon her, as he relates the story of the Fort Holland sorrows. I
0: cannot talk, and the nurse has come to make her walk. The brothers are lonely and the nurse is young, and now you must see that my song is sung. A woe, a me. Shame and sorrow for the family. A woe, a me. Shame and sorrow for the family. Luton asked
2: Sir Lancelot to come up with a song that would push along the narrative while implanting a sinister refrain that the Holland family had been cursed by sorrow and shame. As it transpired, Sir Lancelot was already in possession of such a melody, and with a few lyrical adjustments, the song he'd composed on his fateful voyage back to America, Shame and Sorrow for the Family, became the Fort Holland song, a tune so infectiously memorable that reports at the time state that patrons leaving the theatre after seeing the film would be singing Sir Lancelot's refrain of Our ah, woe and me, shame and sorrow for the family, for hours afterwards. The song would go on to be covered by countless artists, from the Stylistics in 1977 to the British ska pop group Madness in 2005. The most notable version of the song appeared in 1962, when fellow Calypso star, Lord Melody, took Sir Lancelot's original composition and altered the entire lyric set.
0: In family, with more confusion, take it from me, there was
2: His version did away with all mentions of the Holland family and their woes on the island of St. Sebastian, and instead told a comical story of a boy who meets and desires to marry a string of young women. Each time he asks his father for permission to do so, he is refused and met by the response that, that girl is your sister, but your mama don't know. Eventually, the boy confides to his mother about his unhappiness and is told to go ahead and marry any girl he likes. When he asks how this can be, she winks and replies that,
0: Your daddy and your daddy, but your daddy don't know. I tell you.
2: This charming little tale of incest and intrigue became the most covered version of the song and the version best remembered today. But in 1969, television audiences watching The Johnny Cash Show saw him take a seat next to soul singer Odetta and perform a duet of shame and scandal in the family to wild applause. This version contains Sir Lancelot's original lyrics from I Walked With a Zombie, and so for one enchanted evening, the world was treated to the sight of Johnny Cash and Odetta, singing a song about a zombie curse from a Val Luton film.
0: The Hollander man, he kept in the tower, a wife as pretty as a big white flower. She saw the brother, he stole his heart, and that's where the trouble in the family starts. <laughs> oh, Game and
1: scandal on the family me.
2: Shooting began soon after Sir Lancelot's hiring. He joined a cast that included Francis D as Betsy. Tom Conway as mysterious older brother Paul Holland, James Ellison as Wesley, the near do well black sheep of the family, and as the boy's mother, Mrs. Rand, Edith Barrett, who was at the time married to Vincent Price. This particular piece of casting was especially peculiar, since she was in fact three years younger than her supposed son in the film, Tom Conway. Conway was at the time 38 years old, while Edith Barrett was only 35. It wasn't helped by the fact that Conway, an exceptionally heavy drinker, looked more like Edith Barrett's parents than the other way around. Still, in a movie where so much disbelief is already suspended, it's best to let the small points slide. Also in the cast was Teresa Harris, a personal favorite of Val Luton himself, and who'd long been frustrated by the Hollywood studio system. She'd arrived in Hollywood in 1929, hoping that her talents as an actress would shine brighter than any prejudice she may encounter. But opportunities for an African-American actress were limited at best. By 1933, she'd appeared in dozens of films, mainly as the personal maid or housekeeper to the movie star. And even though she tried her best, a breakout hit just didn't seem to be on the horizon. It was then that she took the role of Chico best friend but still maid of barbara Stanwyck's lily in warner brothers shocking pre-code drama babyface
3: he's a big politician ain't he he's a big something and it ain't a politician <laughs> honey you makes me tickle
2: <laughs> it was the first time that harris had played a character allowed to emerge from behind their employer for a while to share a discreet grin or a playful comment oh
3: forget it. Mr. Carter called up. He's coming up for dinner. Yeah. Give the old boy Irish
2: too. <laughs> Harris's Chico plays less like a subservient and more like an equal, something that Harris had been striving for since she arrived in Hollywood. Chico is no mere servant of the main character, but a co-conspirator. She dresses in the same clothes as Lily, plots at the kitchen table with Lily, and during the later parts of the film, when she does finally don a maid's outfit, it's because she and Lily have planned for it due to the new social circle in which they're moving. Crucially, early in the film, Lily defends Chico against her own father when he wants her to get out of his
0: house. Where'd she go? I don't know. Now look what you want and done. You're fired. You lazy
3: fevered little son of a... Hey! Lady with
2: a whip. You can't bother this
3: go on get out of my house chico goes i go what? you
2: heard me don't
0: you talk to me that way i'm your father that's my tough luck nothing you no, know
3: is, if i stay here chico stays too
2: the role seemed like a breakthrough harris was even awarded the auspicious honor of being credited at the beginning of the film on the same title screen as the then up-and-coming john wayne It was unfortunate then that she followed this film by appearing in Professional Sweetheart, alongside Ginger Rogers, again as a maid, Vera. Her role in this film was almost pivotal. At the film's beginning, Ginger Rogers' radio star, Glory Eden, longs to be free of her sweet and pure public image so that she can enjoy the nightlife. Her desire to indulge herself stems from the wild stories related to her by Vera, who spends her nights down in Harlem when she gets off work. Later in the movie, Vera actually saves the day by standing in for Glory at a radio performance, singing her songs and thereby preserving Glory's career. And yet incredibly, despite the importance of Harris's character to the film, she wasn't even given a screen credit. "'I never felt the chance to rise above the role of maid in Hollywood movies,' she said. "'My colour was against me. The fact that I was not hot,' stamped me as either an uppity negress or relegated me to the eternal role of stooge or servant. I can sing, but so can hundreds of other girls. My ambitions are to be an actress. Hollywood had no parts for me. But Val Lewton and Jack Tourneur had rather different ideas about how to treat their African-American actors. Harris's first appearance for Luton had been in Cat People, a minor role as a waitress named Minnie who worked at Sally Lund's cafe, a place in which the main characters dine more than once during the film. Each time she appears, she shoots a wisecrack and comes across as a rather charming little diversion amid the gloom of sexual repression and infidelity.
1: Hello, Mr.
3: Reed.
0: Minnie?
3: Maybe you'd like some nice chicken gumbo today.
0: No, thanks, Minnie. How about some apple pie and a cup of coffee?
3: Yes sir. My goodness don't nobody like chicken gumbo.
2: The role in this case wasn't large enough to warrant a screen credit but Luden had been so taken by the cheerful and charming Harris during filming that he'd almost scrambled to cast her in his next movie. For I Walked With The Zombie she was given the role of Alma the housemaid at the Holland House but although she was once again playing the part of a character in service there were remarkable differences. For starters Alma instantly forms a bond of friendship with Betsy, even advising her on several courses of action. She's shown to have a family and a large circle of friends who all adore her. During the course of the story, she becomes a proud aunt. The sobbing sounds that awaken Betsy on her first night at the Holland Estate are found to belong to Alma, who's worried about the safety of her soon-to-give-birth sister. In short, Alma is no mere prop, no clichéd version of a wise servant, but simply a working girl, fully rounded and possessing of not just a sense of humour, but love to give.
3: Doctors and nurses can only do so much, Alma. They can't cure everything. Doctors that are people can't cure everything. I mean doctors that are people? There are other doctors. Yes, other doctors. Better doctors. Where? At the Homeford. That's nonsense, Alma. They even cure nonsense, Miss Betsy. Are you trying to tell me that the voodoo priest could cure Mrs. Holland? Yes, Miss Betsy. I mean that. The hungan will speak to the rara drums, and the drums will speak to Leba and Dambala. Better doctors.
2: When she's not on screen, it seems perfectly plausible to imagine that she's spending time on an adventure somewhere on the island. Her character lives and breathes, even though her screen time was small. She also appeared proudly on the credits at the beginning, alongside Sir Lancelot and Darby Jones, who played the sinister zombie car Four. This equal treatment of African-Americans in his films would be something for which Tourneur would find himself criticised throughout his career. I've always refused to caricature blacks, he said later in an interview with the French film magazine Positive. I always try never to show them as domestics. I've always tried to give them a profession. To have them speak normally without drawing any comic effect watch the scene in out of the past in the nightclub where there are only black people look at the way they're dressed and filmed the elegance of the young woman in responding to mitchum several times i was called nigger lover by prejudiced studio executives and for long months i was out of the studios for that reason it was sort of a gray list One of the wittiest examples of Luton and Tourneur's knack for confounding the racial stereotype appears in I Walked with a Zombie. Betsy arrives in the Holland Courtyard to find that the island's police commissioner has arrived in order to ask questions about Jessica's illness. Alma is trying to calm the commissioner's horse, who doesn't seem to want to be tied up safely.
1: Mind me
3: now, horse. Come away from there. Are you ever stubborn, just like that old saber man at the home Sticking your nose in places where it isn't wanted. Making trouble for
2: everybody. At first glance, we're meant to assume that Alma the maid's struggle with the horse is purely a comedic one at the expense of an inept servant. Betsy strolls across and casually shows Alma how to calm the horse, but then discovers that Alma has in fact been pretending to struggle with the horse in order to eavesdrop on the commissioner's conversation.
3: I expect there's some trouble. You don't suppose it's because I took Mrs. Holland to the home do you? They haven't been talking loud enough for me to hear, Miss Betsy, but I've been holding this horse for coming on close to an hour, and they've been just talking and talking. I feel it's something very bad.
2: Throughout the rest of the 1940s, Harris appeared in many more Hollywood movies, and while many of these roles went unfortunately uncredited, among African Americans, her name and face were so legendary that at some theatres, the star's name would be ignored when it came to dressing the marquee, and the name of Teresa Harris would be displayed in six-foot-high letters in order to draw noisy crowds of admirers. Despite Harris's attempt to be taken seriously by Hollywood, though, she found herself unable to break through the unfortunate stereotyping of African-Americans at the time, and disillusioned, finally retired from acting in the 1950s, choosing instead the life of a doctor's wife and living from the fruits of the small fortune she'd earned as a Hollywood supporting player, having invested every penny wisely in real estate and stocks. For writer Adèle Ray, her first movie under Val Luton was a whirlwind baptism of fire. We were all plunged into research on Haitian voodoo. Every book on the subject Val could find, she said, Val was an addictive researcher, drawing out of it the overall feel, mood, and quality he wanted, as well as details for actual production. He got hold of a real calypso singer, Sir Lancelot, a charming, literate, articulate man. Sir Lancelot himself, who quickly became part of the Luton family, found us some genuine voodoo musicians. They were great, especially in one particular scene, in which a doll walks in a voodoo ritual, I particularly remember that doll because Val had sent me out to buy one cheap. Everything had to be cheap because we were really on a shoestring. That was another thing about Val. A low budget was a challenge to him, a spur to inventiveness, and everyone around him caught the fever. I don't think I can explain the particular kind of togetherness that Val managed then, Ray remembered. There were some pretty rugged disagreements, but it was togetherness, alright. Really, ideally, in a work sense, more like theatre. It was a small, close unit. There wasn't too much upstairs interference, except on the everlasting budget problem, and some upstairs fears that socket to them was being sacrificed for arty stuff. The upstairs fears belonged entirely to Lou Ostro, who had had to stay his hand when it came to interfering due to the ruling of Charles Kerner despite the disturbing rumours he'd been hearing. Apparently, Luton's zombie movie was light on zombies and heavy on atmosphere, an equation that he'd been fearing since production began. It didn't help that the phrase Jane Eyre in Jamaica was being used by crew to describe the action they were seeing on Luton's set. Furious, Ostro tracked down Charles Kerner and demanded that he intervene. Now, Lou, said Kerner, Mr. Luton brought us in several millions of dollars with his last artistic creation. Who's to say that the zombie film won't bust another piggy bank? Charles, I want you to give me final edit, Ostro said. Kerner chuckled and shook his head. Lou, go drink yourself a beer or two and sit in the sun. This isn't why we hired Val Luton, said Ostro. Lou, you need to back off, Kerner barked. Do you realize that Luton is ahead in his accounts by four million dollars? He could make twenty goddamn movies and not take one dollar on any of them, and he'd still be in the black. I'd rather we made twenty movies I could say I'm proud of, said Ostro. And I'd rather you took the damn hint and stuck to your own business, replied Kerner. Ostro gritted his teeth and nodded. Okay, fine, said Ostro as he turned to leave. But one day, Charles, I'm gonna have my way on this thing. In April of 1943, I Walked With a Zombie was released to an expectant world. One of the first reviews that Luton read was from the New York Times. Horror pictures are enjoying a peculiar popularity the country over at the moment, the review read, so it seems reasonable to assume that RKO has a safe bet in I Walked With a Zombie which opened yesterday to a packed house at the Rialto and at one point drew a horrified scream from a woman patron. With its voodoo rites and perambulating zombie, I walked with a zombie probably will please a lot of people. But to this spectator at least, it proved to be a dull, disgusting exaggeration of an unhealthy, abnormal concept of life. If the Hayes office feels it has a duty to protect the morals of moviegoers by protesting the use of such expressions as hell and damn in purposeful dramas like In Which We Serve and We Are The Marines, then how much more important is its duty to safeguard the youth of the land from the sort of stuff and nonsense that their minds will absorb from viewing I Walked With A Zombie? Luton's aunt, Ala Nazimova, read the New York Times review and called her nephew enraged. What in the goddamn hell are you going to do about this guy? She bawled down the phone. How dare he speak about you this way? Forget it, Luton told her. What do you expect? I expect people to have a little more respect for my nephew, she said. I also expect you to have more pride. Luton laughed. (laughs) You shouldn't get mad at the New York reviewers, he told her. Actually, it's very difficult for a critic to give something called I Walked with a Zombie a good review. Certainly, I Walked With the Zombie is an acquired taste. It is light on straight scares, but drenched in dread. Its central mystery is confounding, and somewhat secondary as the film plays out. Also, the answer to the riddle of what actually happened to Jessica Holland is offered up in fragments. Was Jessica's state caused by Paul Holland's mental abuse? Or was voodoo actually responsible, as the film's most reliable scientific mind assures us it is? Eventually... The answer is up to the viewer, and can be interpreted either way, depending on how one experiences the movie. Ultimately, it's a film that seems inaccessible at first, but which demands investigation and reinvestigation. The many secrets of Fort Holland can only be unlocked with multiple viewings, and only once the damage done by its title is swept from the mind. But the opinion of the New York Times seems to have been a lone voice of dissent among critics at the time. Because everyone else loved it. Most reviewers were pleasantly surprised to find behind the title an endlessly curious mystery drama filled with the chilling imagery that was fast becoming the trademark of a Val Luton film. Among the critics who found themselves falling more and more in love with RKO's new horror boy and his team were Manny Farber of The New Republic and James Agee from The Nation, perhaps the two most well respected film critics in America, who both heaped praise on Luton and Tourneur's continuing confounding of the horror genre. Audiences similarly swarmed to the theatres to see this new sensational picture and left, shuddering and grinning, and singing the refrain from Shame and Scandal in the Family to each other in the streets. The but while the box office receipts were certainly dazzling well over two million dollars in fact the film did not seem to capture the public's imagination in the same way that cat people had done there were voices of dissent among the public who argued that the film had been missold the problem ultimately was that luton and torneo's film a drama heavy with symbolism and hidden meaning more puzzle box than straight horror movie was hampered by a pulp title that kept as many people away as it drew in. This was never more succinctly summarized than by Ruth Luton herself who upon hearing the title for the first time plainly told her husband that I would never go to see a movie called I Walked With a Zombie unless somebody dragged me there. Nevertheless the number of people who were drawn in by RKO's corny title and marketing as well as the glowing reviews of critics, were enough to ensure that Val Luton's little band of fighters had scored another knockout blow. But even before I Walked With The Zombie had begun to deliver another fortune to RKO Studios, Val Luton had been summoned to the office of Charles Kerner and given his next assignment. Due to her work on I Walked With The Zombie, Ardol Ray had been given the task of writing a new screen adventure for The Falcon, incidentally being played at the time by Tom Conway, the star of I Walked with the Zombie. The film was to be called The Falcon and the Co-eds, and was shaping up nicely as a twisting mystery set in a girls' school and featuring a neat supernatural element. Ray, who'd just completed her first treatment of the story, was working late, and happened to glance down at a note that read, Mr. Luton would be pleased if you would call upon him at your earliest convenience. On her way to the car, she happened to glance up and see that Luton's office light, situated in a high corner of the executive building, was still burning. She checked her watch and saw 11pm. Ray entered his office to find him staring at several neat stacks of papers, each lined up perfectly on the desk before him. Beneath his eyes hung shadows so dark that Ray wondered if Jacques Tourneur had dreamed them up. Timidly, she knocked on the already open door and was met by his hand, which beckoned her onward slightly, although he did not look up at her. I feel like I'm trespassing, she said. No, it's fine, he replied. Good timing, I think I'm done here. Great, she said. Is it the new movie? What is it? Luton grabbed a book and held it up. On its cover, a large black cat crawled its way down from top to bottom, its eyes fixed on rays, its teeth bared as though ready to attack. Across the book's middle, the words, Black Alibi, by Cornell Woolridge. "'Always cats,' said Luton. "'I can't seem to get away from them.' "'An adaptation, then?' she asked. "'I thought you had enough clout to dream up your own stories.' Luton smiled. Yeah, it's as though they don't trust me to toe the line or something. Hey, have you ever heard the story of the robber bridegroom by the Brothers Grimm? Ray searched her mind and shook her head. Serial killer, Luton said. Lives in the forest and kills young girls. Practically devours them. Gruesome stuff. Used to scare the hell out of me when I was a kid. This book reminded me of it so much. Got me thinking. Luton turned the book over and studied it again. Black Alibi, he said. Good title. Shame we can't use it. What title have they given you this time? Ray asked. He chuckled. They're calling it The Leopard Man. Ray rolled her eyes. I thought you were okay with weird names, he said. Does this mean you're hiring me? Well, that depends, said Luton. How do you feel about castanets? Oh, I'm just crazy about them, she said. What about Mexico? Oga dulce Oga smiled Ray. Luton frowned. Home, sweet home, she winked. Well, in that case you're hired, he said. Report tomorrow, we have a lot to do. He looked down and began to study the stacks of paper on the desk once more. Are you going to sleep at all, she said. That's the general idea, he replied. She turned to leave. Don't work too hard, okay? Good night, Miss Ray. "'Bright and early tomorrow, please.' "'I mean it,' she said. "'You're not a machine, Mr. Luton.' "'I mean it, too. "'Bright and early tomorrow, "'and make sure you bring your dark side. "'I want your help with something.' "'With what?' said Ray. "'Murder,' said Luton. "'Ray raised an eyebrow. "'Anyone in particular?' "'Oh, yes,' said Luton with a smile. "'Miss Ray, you and I are going to murder "'the nicest girl in the world.' Thank you for listening. Remember, if you would like bonus content, then head to www.patreon.com or hit the link in the show notes. Thank you so much, and I will see you very soon.
1: Yeah, Film Vault. We are one of the original film podcasts. That can't be it? true. There was like two other film podcasts when we began, Brian. How long are we doing this show? You and I first
2: sat down and did a version of the show over 20 years
1: My ago. My God.
2: Two episodes each week.
1: One. We are review movies And the first episode and the second one. Different top five every week. Movies that made you cry. Worst movie accents. Most disturbing movies.
0: All right, the Film Vault, check it out. Wherever you find a fine podcasts.
1: That's right, the film vault's going on twenty plus years.